to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. This week's topic is particularly timely for the kickoff of the 2021 U.S. Antibiotic Awareness Week, which is occurring between November 18th and the 24th. My name is Anna Legerdop. I'm on staff with ASHP, and I will be your host for today's ASHP Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. With me today are two experts that we're excited to visit with, Dr. Arjun Srinivasan. He is the captain and associate director for Healthcare Associated Infection Prevention Programs, Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And many of you might remember that um, a few years ago, we gave Dr. Srinivasan an ASHP Board of Directors Award, thanks to all the work that he has done in antimicrobial stewardship, and especially being such a champion for the for pharmacist involvement in it. And also welcoming Dr. Daniel Morgan. He's a professor of epidemiology and public health with the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. Thank you for joining us today, Arjun and Dan. Let's begin talking about today's topic, which is the impact of disease overestimation and anchoring bias in antimicrobial prescribing behavior. Before we dive into that topic that Dan has expertise on, can you share some updates with listeners related to the 2021 U.S. Antibiotic Awareness Week and why this topic is so important, Arjun? Yeah, Anna, I would love to. And I have to begin by once again thanking ASHP, both for your leadership, what you do, and and the the space that you devote to uh, highlighting antibiotic stewardship and antibiotic use in all that you do. Uh, It is always humbling for me to see how invested you all are in this topic. I know that our health system pharmacists are pulled in so many directions, and that stewardship for many of you is just one of a million things that you are juggling. And so I really am sensitive to that and humbly appreciate the time that you spend with us talking about stewardship and, of course, all that you do to improve antibiotic use in in all of your hospitals. And thanks to ASHP for your leadership in, uh, once again, including this topic on one of your Therapeutic Thursdays podcasts. You know, 2020 was a really tough year uh, for all of us doing antibiotic stewardship. It was hard for everyone in healthcare, and that includes, of course, antibiotic stewardship programs. We know that our uh, stewardship programs, especially, I think, our pharmacists, were really pulled deeply into managing COVID, managing all of the therapeutics and short supply and EUAs and INDs and initials that we never uh, knew about before and, and probably uh, would just as soon forget, but they have done a phenomenal job in stepping up to help uh, take care of, of patients, which is what, of course, uh, all of us are focused on. But what that has meant is that you know a lot of the stewardship work that people were doing and making really good progress on really had to, to, to go on pause uh, in many institutions. We've seen some surveys where, you know, basically everybody asked, said, yeah, that, you know, our stewardship efforts either slowed or stopped during the COVID pandemic. 
And at the same time, we know that stewardship was incredibly important during the pandemic, right? You had large numbers of patients presenting with febrile respiratory illnesses to hospitals. And what we saw uh, reflected in that was big increases in the use, uh, particularly of agents to treat community-acquired pneumonia, right? So every time there was a COVID wave in the United States, we saw an increase in prescribing enceftriaxone and azithromycin. Fortunately, we, we didn't see big increases in overall use, and we didn't see big increases in broad-spectrum antibiotic use. And to me, that's a big win for our stewardship programs. I think it argues for the fact that, yes, we did see some increases, but we've built some good stewardship infrastructure and practices in our hospitals so that you know, when those COVID waves subsided, we saw use go back down. We didn't see people reaching for drugs that wouldn't be indicated for patients with community-acquired respiratory tract infections, right? Like the uh, broad-spectrum carbapenems and things like that. So I think though we saw increases in use, I think it's important for us to applaud the successes where we saw them and recognize that I think that is a reflection of the stewardship infrastructure that we've built. And speaking of the stewardship infrastructure, we have just recently analyzed the results of the 2020 National Survey on Antibiotic Stewardship Programs in the United States. Uh, and I'm pleased to report that we continue to see increases in the number of hospitals that have stewardship programs that meet all seven of the CDC's core elements for hospital stewardship programs. You know, back in 2014, when we started measuring this, only 41% of hospitals had a stewardship program with all seven of those elements. Uh, at, in 2020, more than 90% of hospitals now have stewardship programs with all seven of these elements. That's a huge win. I would be the first to acknowledge that just because you have a, a program that meets all of the core elements, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've optimized antibiotic use to the full extent that you could. But I certainly think that without these programs in place, we don't have a strong shot of really optimizing antibiotic use in our hospital. So I think this is going to be a necessary, but maybe not sufficient step along that way, but it's a really important one. And I think we need to, to acknowledge that. The other thing that has been fantastic to see is the number of hospitals that are reporting their risk-adjusted benchmark use of antibiotics into the CDC's National Healthcare Safety Network antibiotic use option. Uh, as of this year, more than 2,000 hospitals have now successfully submitted data on antibiotic use. So we are now able to begin constructing what I think are some pretty robust risk-adjusted benchmarks that facilities can use for quality improvement, and that is exciting to see as well. So there's lots more to come. We look forward to working with, with all of you and with ASHP to explore more of, this, uh, more of this, to see what more can be done. We are gonna be releasing two reports very shortly, uh, the annual stewardship report, which talks broadly about antibiotic stewardship efforts in the United States across all healthcare delivery systems. So outpatient, long-term care and hospitals. And our annual report on hospital antibiotic use will also be forthcoming. And so, you know, as we think about the types of things that we need to do to improve stewardship, you know, all of this, what we're talking about, the measurement, the stewardship programs, it's all infrastructure to drive interventions. And at the end of the day, interventions in stewardship hinge so much on behavior and altering the behavior of prescribers. Uh, and that's why, you know, I'm so excited today to get a chance to, to listen to and, and talk with Dan Morgan, 
Dan has published a series of what I think are really fascinating papers on uh, measurement on, on biases in healthcare and how we are uh, hindered by these biases and how we can kind of understand the biases and begin to address them in order to improve our practices. Dan's work is really far reaching. Um, it's not just about uh, antibiotic use. You know, he has done really groundbreaking work on some of these behavioral theories related to a number of different uh, quality improvement issues. Uh, but Dan's an ID doc at heart, so antibiotic prescribing and improvements uh, therein are near and dear to him. So I'm excited to get to, to introduce him and talk with him today about some of the work that he's been doing on some of these behavioral psychology aspects of antibiotic use. So Dan, let me turn it over to you and have you kind of uh, introduce uh, some of your work, and then we can dig into some of the details. Great. Well, first of all, I want to say thanks uh, to um, ASHP for the invitation to do this and to Arjun for initiating this conversation. And that was a very flattering uh, description of some of the work we've done. Yeah, I'm an infectious disease doctor um, at heart and do epidemiology, but I think I'm very interested in why we do what we do and uh, where there are opportunities to improve healthcare. Um, by sometimes not doing as much, which I think antibiotic overuse is one of the, the more accepted areas, but there's certainly a lot of overuse of, of other um, types of medical care and certainly, you know, relevance to pharmacists, you know, there's a lot of overuse of, um, I don't know, antipsychotics and proton pump inhibitors and, you know, even some of the, the cardiology type drugs. So there's, there's a lot of overuse around or use for very marginal benefits. And I think it's good for people to be aware, you know, of that and to be thinking of opportunities for improving care. Because we do know that, you know, outside of antibiotics, if, for people who have polypharmacy, when meaning, you know, more than five medications, they have a significantly increased chance of adverse events and, you uh, you know, probably the optimal treatment uh, avoids that in most patients. Awesome. Well, do you want to kind of launch in and just maybe introduce some of these terms? I think some of these terms, like the different types of biases will be kind of new to a lot of the people uh, who are, are listening to this podcast. And so maybe you want to introduce some of these terms and then we can dig into them. Yeah, great. So let me I'll sort of run through the biases very, very generally, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about some you know, more specific cases. So biases are systemic errors in thinking that impact decisions and judgment. And they're, you know, they're much broader than medicine. Um, psychologists develop these in thinking about how people are influenced to buy things or you know, make other decisions in their lives. A lot of this work is from uh, Kahneman and Tversky, who are psychologists, you know, active in the 60s up until now uh, for, for Daniel Kahneman. And a lot of these biases can overlap. So it's not like you have sort of one or the other. Sometimes these biases describe a, a similar type process. And, and I think the key ones to think about as they relate to antibiotic stewardship um, are two. And the first one I would call action bias. And that is... Uh, meaning that there's this general um, tendency towards action. A, a good example of this is that uh, people analyzed soccer goalies during penalty kicks. And uh, of course, the soccer goalie during a penalty kick, it's a bad situation to be in. You're going to lose most of the time. So it kind of relates to medicine where, you know, whether or not you do the right thing, a bad outcome may occur. And so they analyzed all these tapes and it's, it's the same situation always. There's a kicker and there's a goalie and the goalie can dive left, right or stay in the middle. And uh, and if 
if you looked at the distribution of shots, they're equally distributed, like middle, left, and right. But if you look at the goalies, they're much more likely to dive to the left or right than to stand still in the middle. And uh, investigators asked these goalies why they did that. And, and essentially the answer was, if something bad happens, you want to look like you tried. You know, at least I tried, at least I dove, even if it went in the other side. And, and I think that that relates to what we do in medicine, right? I mean, that we're dealing with often sick patients and outcomes are often bad. And uh, you know, we want to do something uh, to help. And so some of the biases that go into action bias um, are affect bias, which is going with your gut feeling, um, which, of course, we do a lot. Anchoring bias which is um, anchoring on one piece of information that often comes in early. So the example of this outside of medicine is like um, buying a car. And if someone sets a price really high, like says, you know, $25,000, that's what you start with. And you tend to, you know, buy it around that price more than if they started out with like, you know, $20,000, for example. And then there's confirmation bias, which is I think that we tend to find, we tend to interpret information in a way that confirms our previous beliefs. So, uh, you know, we, it tends to be harder to find information, to interpret information correctly if it contradicts our beliefs. And then the other set of sort of biases are, are really more around the idea of disease overestimation. And I would call this probability neglect. The, the most common bias that's talked about is base rate neglect, which is the idea that we don't think about the prevalence or incidence of, of things, you know, and for our example of disease. So how often is a disease? Um, and this gets back to the, um, you know, to the, the saying in medicine, uh, you know, common things are common, or if you hear hoofbeats, don't think zebras, think horses. And but then I'd say there's also this problem of inappropriate updating of probability. So test results uh, help us change the probability of results, but they're not perfect. They're not 100 percent or zero. And I think we often don't react to them that way. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I, I love the, um, the the soccer goalie story. And that's one of the fun things about talking about this type of work is there are so many fun examples from outside of medicine that, that we can draw from to help illustrate some of these concepts. And. I remember I had an attending who once said, you know, as a, as a resident, the most important thing is remember, don't just do something, stand there. Um, because there is this tendency to always, you know, want to do something. And that's, that's not always the right thing. It's not always the most helpful thing uh, in, in medicine. So we, we talked a little bit about, about soccer goalies. Um, most of the people on this call probably are not soccer goalies, uh, but are more interested and involved in the treatment of infectious diseases. So, Dan, I wonder if you could go into a little bit of detail, maybe uh, starting with some of these biases, and, and talk a little bit about how, how you've seen some of these play out uh, in infectious diseases. Great. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, concrete examples are always much more useful than uh, sort of uh, defining, you know, uh, indistinct uh, biases. So let's talk about a, a case that I saw recently that where there was uh, overall a, a fair amount of action bias in, in his care. Um, so this was a man in his uh, 70s who had been admitted for COVID pneumonia six months prior, and he was discharged from the hospital. He was lucky he got better. Um, but since discharge, he'd had low energy, he'd had subjective fevers, and he'd had about a 30-pound weight loss. So he, he really seemed like he wasn't doing as well as he had been before having the COVID pneumonia. And as an outpatient, he'd been worked up. He had, clinicians went with their gut feeling, this affect bias, thinking that he may have endocarditis. 
And, uh, you know, which is not an unreasonable consideration, but it's certainly an unlikely possibility in, in this patient. And he got a pretty good workup. Um, he had uh, two blood cultures that were negative. He had a transthoracic echocardiogram that was indeterminate. And based upon that, people were worried. And so he was admitted to the hospital at that time and started on broad spectrum antibiotics um, while he waited for the weekend to get a, a transthoracic echocardiogram to try to evaluate this, you know, possibly positive test. And I think this is a good example of anchoring bias. So, you know, this, the discussion all centered around um, endocarditis. And if he had endocarditis, even though we got a lot of information that made endocarditis very unlikely, it would be very unlikely that a patient had negative blood cultures off antibiotics um, and still had endocarditis, but there was still this uh, diagnostic momentum that went along with the, uh, you know, kind of confirming the idea of, of endocarditis. You know, the, the indeterminate transthoracic uh, echocardiogram was interpreted as like, well, that could be evidence of endocarditis, even though it was really just a poor study. So um, I saw him as an infectious disease consultant after he was on antibiotics, which is my typical role. I recommended they stop antibiotics and they send him home and he could come back on Monday for the transesophageal echocardiogram because he didn't need to sit in the hospital to wait. The, the primary team was worried about him having endocarditis. They, they did agree to stop antibiotics, but they wouldn't send him home. So he stayed for the weekend um, just to be safe and eventually got a negative uh, transesophageal echocardiogram and went home. And, and surprisingly enough, it was right around this time, he started to talk about feeling better. I don't, I don't know if he was just afraid that we would treat him <laughs> some more and he wanted to leave. But. You know, yeah. it, it, it's a great story. I mean, it, it encapsulates all of those different types of biases. And, and I think one of the, the things that I'm reminded of in, in hearing this story and would love to hear your reaction to, you know, this is um, – one of the things that we talk about sometimes in, in antibiotic use is you're taking an antibiotic timeout, right? And, and stopping and critically reassessing therapy, looking at all of the, the data and evidence there and making a decision, you know, at this moment in time, what should we do going forward? And, you know, I didn't know it, but I think maybe one of the reasons why that is helpful where it's been implemented is, is it's, it's getting an anchoring bias, right? You're attempting to let go of that anchor and say, okay, let's start fresh and let's not assume endocarditis. Let's look at the data now and see where we are. No, I mean, I think that's, that's a great point. And uh, even though I've, you know, worked with the timeout, um, you know, on, on other projects, uh, I mean, I think that that's a, a a good observation that it really is a, a point of just sort of stopping and trying to rethink the situation that, you know, may have a label of like admitted for rule out endocarditis. And so people are sort of stuck trying to justify why it's not endocarditis versus really trying to switch the narrative and say, okay, who is this patient? And it's a patient who has this weight loss and low energy post COVID pneumonia, which is a pretty you know, good narrative for a non-infectious process, but a post-COVID type syndrome. Um, and the timeout can be a good way to, to, you know, just have a pause and to rethink about that. And, you know, Dan, I, I wonder if, you know, one of the things that would be helpful in our stewardship efforts is to begin to name this more for people. Because I think if you go just tell people, oh, take a timeout, that they'd be like, well, why bother? It's the same <laughs> team. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. But I wonder if we told people, hey, you know, there's something called anchoring bias, and it means that there's a lot of inertia 
Um, and maybe people would understand inertia more than anchoring bias, but you're going to continue, you're going to tend to continue to do whatever you're doing. And the timeout is trying to address this well-documented behavioral psychology phenomenon that we're all subject to because we're human beings. That's why we want you to take a timeout. That's the goal of the timeout. No, I mean, I think that's a great point. As you, as you said, with biases, I think a key part of them is knowing that we all have them. So the solution to biases isn't, you know, trying to force yourself out of them, but just to be aware of them and to figure out like, uh, you know, kind of tricks or heuristics that you can use to get around them so that they don't, you know, uh, lead to making bad judgments. And Dan, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. You know, one of the, it's a great point that you raised, one of the tricks uh, or heuristics that we could use is having someone else do that timeout for you, right? That's kind of, in a sense, the principle of uh, post-prescription review. It's that, you know, a fresh set of eyes, uh, it, it, exactly the role you played in this case. You know, the, the fresh set of eyes came and said, hmm, I, I'm not anchored by your admitting, admitting diagnosis. I'm seeing the person anew. And therefore, you know, I am free of your anchoring bias and I can make these recommendations. I wonder if that might be, uh, a, in a sense, a heuristic that, that we could execute. Yeah, I mean, it's a great idea. And I mean, I think a lot of it's about how how, how to implement something like this. Cause I mean, I do think infectious disease doctors often feel that this is their role. I know there's, you know, often, uh, you know, funny Twitter memes or something like, you know, anyone can start antibiotics, but only ID doctors can stop them. And, uh, and that feels like my role more than actually starting antibiotics. Um, but I do think, you know, trying to emphasize sort of the pause and thinking through the situation, especially when you are dealing with more complex patients that don't completely fit a narrative, um, as this patient does, or a lot of patients who, you know, are on antibiotics, say for sepsis or some other, you know, very nonspecific indication. And maybe the situation isn't the same as it was in the emergency room. And uh, if they can really pause and think about it, you know, with a, a fresh set of eyes, or maybe even the same clinicians, like having a looking at things differently, there's a potential for, for I think, in, you know, optimizing the care of patients. Awesome. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about that kind of second domain that you were mentioning up front, this idea of overestimation of disease. Great. Well, this is uh, an area I've been very interested in. And, you know, when I talked to people who did evidence-based medicine before we started some of the research studies, a lot of them said, well, yeah, of course, you know what you're going to find, right? Uh, but but why do you want to show that again? Everyone knows that. And uh, a lot of our, our work was interested in trying to say in real life and kind of common scenarios, do we do this? Because I didn't, I don't think that doctors know that we overestimate. I think that, you know, people who study behavior in medicine tend to see that, but it's not really kind of part of the, the clinician mindset. So uh, we just finished a study that looked at uh, over 500 clinicians uh, across eight U.S. states, and uh, we asked them about some very common conditions, and and then tried to also ask them about some. We had some scales that got at personality traits, and uh, one of the cases we looked at, or we described to them, was an elderly patient with smelly urine and a positive urine culture. So this is you know kind of. We had a very typical case among infectious disease types or people who do stewardship of asymptomatic bacteria. And so someone who doesn't need antibiotics, but uh, the majority of clinicians, and this surprised me actually just how many estimated this, uh, the majority of clinicians estimated he had a UTI based upon the smelly urine symptom, I think, um, as well as the positive urine culture, and said they would treat him with antibiotics. 
So I think that it was clear evidence that there's this strong overestimate towards disease that we found with other things too, like cardiac ischemia and breast cancer and you know other common conditions. But uh, we also tried to look at the clinician personalities with some scales. So there's a, a medical maximizer scale, there's an intolerance of uncertainty scale, and uh, there's a numeracy scale that we applied. And, and we did find that the people who are more likely to give antibiotics tended to be medical maximizers, they tended to be intolerant of uncertainty, and to have to be poor with numeracy or kind of the manipulation of, of numbers. That's really interesting. And I wonder, and, and Anna, you might might comment some here. I, I wonder if this is one where, where pharmacists in many ways do, do have some advantages, especially with this issue of numeracy. Because I think, you know, way more than docs, you know, pharmacists are incredibly comfortable with numbers and math and calculations. And I, I wonder if this, their comfort with numeracy in some ways makes them maybe more adept at managing some of this. Well, thanks for thinking of that, right? There, there are pharmacists a lot of times do like to follow the data and use the data to make their decisions, as, as does everyone in healthcare. But speaking of anchoring, you know, we have anchored this topic to kick off at the start of Antibiotic Awareness Week, but you've made the point, Dan, that this could be applied to so many other areas within healthcare beyond infectious disease. And in, in so many ways, antimicrobial stewardship has, has led the way for looking at how do, we op, how do we optimize management of these other disease states as well and apply the principles there. So I think, I think just listening to both of you speak, I'm really encouraged to think that other listeners maybe that aren't in infectious disease can also apply these principles with their teams and getting that permission for a pause to maybe step into that the term you used, Dan, that diagnostic momentum or that inertia as part of a team-based dis- decision, I really could see that being applied to a lot, of, a lot of places. So yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Oh, great. I mean, and I would just second what Arjun said about a pharmacist. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm on clinical service right now. I just saw, uh, was uh, rounding with the team before uh, this call. And, and we have a great infectious disease pharmacist who, uh, is always a, a key resource for the team who you know knows a lot more about exactly what was happening or you know some of the team dynamics even in the hospital because she tends to be on service more than than me and uh and and I do think that the the pharmacists tend to to be I don't know like a bit more data driven and a bit more kind of protocol oriented so more aware of like well you know this is what you know we do five days for this disease and uh and I think more more open to that maybe than uh, the clinicians are. So, um, you know, I, I certainly second that I, I think pharmacists have a big role in this and, you know, antibiotic stewardship, as much as there's still challenges in improving how we use antibiotics is probably, you know, kind of like leading the, the path towards, uh, you know, just being more aware of overuse and, uh, you know, trying to, to do the best for the patient often with doing less. Yeah. You know, I, I've seen a lot of this during the, COVID, and it's something I saw a great quote somewhere where, where someone said, you know, everyone in society, as a society, we, we overestimate risks and we underestimate our ability to manage those risks. And I think that is so true and reflective of what you're saying here. You know, most of these are, these are pretty rare. Most of these infections are, you know, oftentimes pretty rare. Even in patients, you know, who present to the hospital with what you think are classic signs and symptoms, many of them don't have the diseases that we think they do. And I think it's important to remember 
that like your first example, you know, the, the actual incidence of endocarditis is, is pretty low. And so, you know, the, the, the chance that any one individual has endocarditis is still really low, even when they have some of the consistent signs and symptoms. So I think remembering the kind of that, it gets back to that kind of pretest probability, right? That, that we were all taught in medical school. But I think what's happened is that we have gotten to a point where, where we think the pretest probability is way, way higher than it really is. No, I mean, that's, that's a great point. I've been, uh, I mean, I, I think a lot about this and um, I mean, I do think some of it is it's just sort of what, what we consider the basis for medicine is too. I mean, I, I think the probability is, is, um, you know, it really defines how we understand diagnosis and testing as far as like sensitivity and specificity and, uh, you know, absolute risk reduction and whatnot. But, um, I think that really the way that most clinicians, uh, at least physicians, tend to think about thing is tends to be more pathophysiologically. Like, you know, what did you learn as sort of the syndrome, and uh, you know, I, you know, and uh, and not really think about how likely it would be, and to to consider the probability. So, I mean, I, I think that part of this for clinicians may be just trying to be more aware of, of probability is is a, a key factor and not just, you know, does it sound like it could be endocarditis or does it sound like it could be tuberculosis, you know, when those things are both very rare in, in our populations. Yeah, and I think you're know, bringing it back to the point that Anna made, I mean, it's probably an area where, where pharmacists can help lead us here because I think they do, as Anna said, I frankly think they are a little better than at least I know the pharmacists I work with are better than I am, I should say, when it comes to these issues of, you know, estimation and understanding and probability and that kind of thing. So I, I think it's another area where we've got a lot to learn from our pharmacy colleagues and where they can really help us. You kind of push a lot of this forward with stewardship. And, you know, I, I know we have to wrap up here. I could talk about this kind of stuff all day. If, if people are interested I know, um, Dan, there's Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. That, that's a pretty heavy read, but, you know, if you're super interested in this kind of topic, I guess that's a good place. But I, I also know that um, a book that I love, Michael Lewis wrote a book called The Undoing Project, which is about Kahneman and Tversky. And Dan, I don't know if you, if you have read those and have one that you recommend. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm similar to you. I actually found uh, Michael Lewis's book. I mean, you know, he reads, he writes books that you can kind of read like watching a movie there. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I would say that's much more approachable and gives you a good sense of things. And then you can dive into the details if you, you know, feel passionate about it. Well, uh, Anna, let me turn things over to you to close. I just want to thank you again for hosting us here and thank you again for all that you all do at ASHP to help us uh, with our efforts to improve antibiotic use. So I'll turn it back over to you, Anna. Well, thank you. And thank you first, Arjun. You, you um, and Melinda brought this to our attention as a topic that would be beneficial for our listeners, and it certainly will be. Um, as I said earlier, not just those who specialize in infectious disease, um, but those that want to do something with polypharmacy, um, as as you mentioned earlier, or, or other disease states as well. And um, this has just been fascinating to listen to. So thank you so much. And um, thank you for the comments that you made about pharmacists as team members. I'm sure Dan, especially the pharmacist that works with you, will, be, will appreciate being mentioned on, on this podcast as well today, too. So 
that's all the time that we have for today. I want to thank Arjun and Dan again for joining us to discuss this Therapeutic Thursday podcast on the topic of the impact of disease overestimation and anchoring bias in antimicrobial prescribing behavior. Join us here every Thursday where we will be talking with other ASHP member contact matter experts on the variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.